And the lectionary prescribes that we turn to John for All Saints Day. Now, John's gospel is far more ethereal than the gospel of Mark where we've been lingering. In fact, John's gospel opens with the words, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, proclaiming from the very beginning that Jesus is one with God. In this gospel, we hear the list of what are called I am statements. I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the good shepherd. All of these I am statements draw here to understand that Jesus, who appears as a man, is so united with God that he is the one who nourishes us for the journey, who illuminates the way to life, and is the source for our salvation. Jesus accompanies these teachings with wondrous works. Though far fewer in number than what we find in Matthew, Mark, or Luke, they are remarkable and witnessed to only in John's Gospel. In one case, there's a person who was ill for 38 years and was cured. There was another who was blind since birth, yet received sight. And in another narrative, Jesus transforms vast quantities of water into wine at Cana. John's Gospel only relates seven instances as evidence of Jesus' capacity to change lives, but they astound all of those who witness them. These are the signs that point to the truth about God and that the life that we find expression in Jesus. Our reading for today picks up at the very end of Jesus' three-year ministry as he heads towards his fate in Jerusalem. When his friends Martha and Mary demand that he come to heal their sick brother Lazarus, Jesus lingers and takes so much time to get to Bethany that Lazarus dies. Enraged, Martha accuses Jesus that had he been there, Lazarus would not have died. And in their exchange, we hear the iconic statement from Jesus as he says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Now listen to the rest of this story as I read from John chapter 11. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. When he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them also said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, there is already a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they might believe that you sent me. When he said this, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet were bound with strips of cloth, and his face was also wrapped in a cloth. And Jesus said to them, and bind him and let him go. Please pray with me. Dear God, we confess that sometimes we are so busy, life is so hectic, and we are so distracted that we become anxious in silence, in prayer, and in these moments on Sunday morning. So come to us in this silence 
Speak your word to us in it and give us the patience and faith to hear within and between the words about who you are and the love that brought us to life. We pray this in Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. One Sunday, late this past summer, I arrived at church at my usual early hour so that I can prepare for worship before the crowds get here. I walked past the memorial garden and absolutely stopped frozen in my tracks because something had caught my eye. For all the time I've spent in the garden, I never expected to see what remained in the early morning light, and it took me several long moments to let the image seep in and to make sense of it and to also let all of my emotions settle. In the center of our gracefully curved walls was a white trellis with chairs in almost neatly lined rows facing it. Some of the chairs were askance, though, as if someone had left hurriedly, and there were others off to the side that I imagine a string quartet might have played. And tossed on the ground were a few streamers with ribbons and bells and a few flowers. You could see that this worship service had been a celebration, and the air was still palpable with joy and with life. The sight took my breath away, and in the early morning dawn, in my quiet time, what was already a sacred place became even more so. I brushed off a dew-covered seat and imagined what those saints had witnessed and what they were still blessing with their smiles, for I realized that it was a wedding that had taken place yesterday, that, that Saturday before. When I related this story to others, some reacted with an, ew, why would anyone get married in a cemetery? Well, our memorial garden is not a cemetery. There's these impeccably manicured gardens, there's the flowering bushes and the dove statue, and it holds those that we love, and it's where many will later rest. It's the garden where children play and dogs are walked, where members sit in quiet, and our garden is always filled with life. I imagine the couple who decided to commit their lives to each other and to ask God's blessings upon them did so in the garden, when they realized that the love that blossomed in them was from God, and it was also birthed through the generations who had literally loved them into life and who now rested in the garden. In my heart and mind, I can only imagine how their saints would have danced and waved streamers and clapped their hands for the joy of marriage and new life. Of course, they wanted to host the party. Now, today is All Saints Day. We set aside this Sunday to celebrate with gladness those in our lives who have gone before us and loved us into life. In our Protestant tradition, these saints are not canonized by Rome, but are the souls we hold in our heart who linger in the balcony of our lives. Saints, Frederick Buechner wrote, are not, I quote, plaster statues, men and women of such paralyzing virtue that they never thought a nasty thought or did an evil thing their whole life. Saints, Buechner claims, are essentially life givers, and to be with them is to become more alive. All those who created this church are saints. Those who sat in these pews, sang in our choir, played our organ, led our outreach, taught our children, and oversaw the sanctuary built. Those who visited the sick, those are our saints. And each one of us is surrounded by our own saints. Our parents, perhaps a spouse or a sibling, Grandparents, aunts and uncles, our teachers and mentors, friends far and near who inspired us, who loved us, expected much from us and prodded us to become who we are. Our saints encourage us and remind us of the faith that they received from those before them, and our saints teach us to be faithful in our own days, to seek this victory in this life and to trust Jesus for victory in the next life 
These are our communion of saints. And they remain present in our lives. Have you noticed how we seem to be in relationship with them still? When we say things like, oh, wouldn't he have been proud? Or she would have loved these grandchildren. We remember in a way that suggests he somehow is proud and that she somehow, in the mystery of God's time, loves these children that she'd never met. Or we might say, every time I hear that hymn, I smile remembering how he would embed melodies or messages just for us. And embracing these notions, we can appreciate the hymn's character more deeply and know that he is still with us in this place. For some, this All Saints Day, though, is a string and one in a long line of what I call the string of firsts. The string of firsts refers to the holidays observed the first year without someone. There's the first Thanksgiving that we're staring at, putting up a tree, facing Christmas, and starting a new year, all the while remembering and grieving. As we celebrate All Saints Day, we also accept someone's grief may be so fresh and the absence of a loved one so profoundly silent that the thought of a saint is not quite sweet, not even close to bittersweet, for their grief might be palpable. For Martha and Mary, who were mourning their brother, they were not ready to celebrate all saints. They were inconsolable at the loss, and they were frightened at the finality of his death, for him and for themselves. When someone close to us dies, it changes everything we believe to be true of life now and of life beyond. So complaining to Jesus, they invoked a Jewish tradition of very faithful prayer, the prayer of lament. And it's by taking, it's almost as if they were daring to take God by the lapels and speak honestly of their pain in human experience. You heard the words, but you can imagine the tear-filled rage. If you had been here, our brother would not have died. Jesus, on the other hand, does not placate them as passive children, and he does not condescend to them by claiming that Lazarus' death was in some way, quote-unquote, the will of God. Tragically, too many people will say that at a deathbed, and that can never be true. Instead, Jesus shares in their emotion, for great love evokes gut-wrenching grief such that Jesus wept as well. Perhaps this scene in John's Gospel is its, its version of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, a place where Jesus endures the tragedy and pain of human life that we cannot escape, and he affirms our dying and our death and all of our fears surrounding that. In Jesus, we don't get to bypass the finality of death, but we do not face it alone, nor do we die alone. In our scripture passage, the writer takes pains to recreate the visceral reality of death, asking us to smell the stench and imagine a stone so heavy Jesus could not move it. Then Jesus reveals what he has proclaimed all along. He is one with God, and he does this by praying. Father, I knew you always hear me. And he says this not for God's sake or for his sake, but for the crowd standing. And then Jesus shouts, Lazarus, come out. When Lazarus came from the tomb with grave clothes still on, we can believe that God and Jesus are one, able and willing to claim Lazarus in life and in death. This scene also foreshadows all of what is yet to come. In only a short while, it will be Jesus who goes into the tomb, and by the power of God will be raised. Theologian and famous preacher Fred Craddock observes, it's as though one held up to the light a sheet of paper 
on which was written the story of the raising of Lazarus, but bleeding through from the reverse side of the paper and clear enough to read is the other story of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, if we pay attention to all of the Halloween decorations, the plastic corpses, the styrofoam tombs, and those icky skeletons that are littered across lawns, we know that they play on our fear of death. For death is a defining event in our lives, for those that we love and for our own lives. But death does not define our lives, our theology, or our faith. Jesus is aware of how difficult it is to believe that, so when he prayed to God for the sake of the crowd standing there and called Lazarus out of the tomb, it was also for you and for me, it was for our sake. Jesus spoke to God and calls us to believe that he was always and is always one with God. Claiming Lazarus after death proved his promise. We will be with God beyond the horizon of death. And later in John's Gospel, Jesus asks us to imagine a mansion with many rooms, places for us all that are not bound in time or place. And the second and equally important relationship revealed in this story is the relationship God has with us through Jesus here and now. Jesus loved Lazarus and Martha and Mary in this life, demonstrating the reality that God comes to us. Eternal life begins right now. We can set aside our fear and live as if death has no power in our days, because it's Jesus that asks us to live as if in life and death we belong to him and to God. Those saints that we talked about, the people who learn to live with gusto and courage and swing out as wide as possible, all of that in the face of death, do so with the confidence in Jesus now and in Jesus' ability to be the victor when all of their strength and life is gone. These, strength, these saints in our life realize before they die that they are to live and they want the same for us, and that is life. There are 68 names listed in our worship bulletin today of congregants and family members who have died since our last All Saints Days. The members are on the left and the family members are on the right. And if the past year seems to have been more grief-filled than others, you are absolutely correct. There were weeks and weeks that we read two and three names in worship. It seems wrong to calculate a percentage increase since last year for these names are beloved and not data points, but I assure you it's dramatically more. So we need to pause and recognize the depth and the breadth of grief sitting amongst us. For there are many of you that just buried a loved one. And if you have not, you are sitting next to someone who is recreating a life with only memories. And this is when the church is to be the church. We are to hold one another. We are to be the other's strength until they are strong. We are to tell the story of God's love, not in words, but with a brave presence and a compassionate heart. And this is also when the church is to tell the story again of the Last Supper when Jesus promised to be with us each day and also again in paradise. I'm reaching back a little, but there's a classic movie called Places in the Heart. It's about a segregated town in the midst of the Depression in Texas. It portrays in its final scene the communion of saints during Holy Communion, and the audience sees the actress Sally Field. They see Sally Field surrounded by the people from her life. Some are alive and join her in worship. Some in the scene have moved out of town. 
Some have died and yet appear in the scene as, as if they did in life, and all sit together side by side and participate in the passing of the bread. This visual reminds us that all believers of all time celebrate together the gift of God's mercy and the grace of Jesus Christ. When we celebrate Holy Communion, we do so with the saints who have gone before. We celebrate with those siblings who are alive but in different congregations, cities, and countries. We celebrate with those children who are away in college but yet are still with us. We celebrate with the past, including those disciples at the Last Supper who handed on to us this tradition so that we too can believe. We celebrate with those present and future believers in the communion of saints. We are tethered to one another through the one who came to us to be with us in this life and to be with us through death. Our Lord Jesus Christ, amen. Mm.